I was sitting in the cell phone lot at O'Hare Airport on July 26, 2019, when I opened up my phone as I was waiting for my daughter to arrive on a flight and started scrolling through the news. And I read an Instagram post from a pastor whose church I had visited and whose sermons I had appreciated and who shares some friends with me. I was stricken in my heart as the impact of his words sunk in. Here's what he wrote for all the world to read. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Reading that still makes me shudder. It makes me pray that this will never happen to me, that I will never find myself forsaking the Jesus that I love today. And I'm sure that many of you are burdened as I am for people in your life who you love dearly, who seem to be on a similar path. A recent study from the Pew Research Center reports that 71% of the people who leave the faith of their childhood do so because they gradually drifted away. Not because they were angry at God, not because they were confronted with overwhelming intellectual objections. They just drifted and their hearts grew dull and distant from Jesus. And we should never think, well, that would never happen to me. Never take it for granted that the Jesus you think you love today, you'll continue to love next year. That this is just going to be natural for you. Never think you couldn't take an easy exit off the narrow way that leads to life. Fight to stay faithful. Persevere in loving Jesus. Keep on believing. That's why we were given the book of Revelation. The greatest battle of your life is not to stay alive, it's to stay in love with Jesus. The greatest battle of your life is not to conquer cancer, it's not to stay eternally young, it's not to live to a bright old age, it's not to avoid hardship and harm. The greatest struggle of your life, believer, is to stay in love with Jesus to keep believing, to keep being faithful to the one who loves you to the end. Loving Jesus matters more than life itself. And he gave us this book to help us keep on fighting to believe, to keep our love from growing cold. So please turn there in your Bibles to Revelation chapters 13 and 14. And remember, if you're in Christ, Revelation is not here to scare you. This book is a loving gift from your Savior, calling you to keep loving him and to keep enduring faithfully through all the trials we're going to experience between the time of his ascension to heaven and his return to earth at the second coming. And let's trust that he wants to do good to us as we read a portion of his word this morning that's filled with some strange things and some perhaps confusing images 
God has good for us in this part of his word too. So let's read beginning at verse 1 of chapter 13 and worship him who reveals himself to us in his word. And I saw a beast coming out of, out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Now, here's the main point we're going to see this morning. Satan is scheming with fury to destroy true faith on the earth. But Christians should faithfully endure because we know our salvation is secure. And we hear this clarion call to endurance in verse 10. You see it there? This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Everything that is written in this portion of, of God's word is written to help you endure and be faithful to Jesus to the end. So I want to answer two questions this morning about our need for endurance in faith. The first is this, what are we being called to endure? And the second, what difference does it make? 
So number one, what are we being called to endure? We need to understand the nature of the battle that we're in, what it is that we're called to endure. Last week, we saw that the devil is a great dragon, but he's been defeated. He's been cast down to the earth. He couldn't destroy the child, and he couldn't destroy the woman, the covenant community from whom the child came. She was born on eagle's wings into the wilderness where God is taking care of her out of the dragon's reach. But chapter 12 ended with an ominous preview of coming attractions. What did we read there in verse 17 of chapter 12 that shows us the battle is not over? It says, So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. And that's what chapter 13 is telling us about. It's telling us about the war of the dragon against the woman's offspring. Satan's war on the believers, on the church. Now, before any great commander goes out to war, they do a reconnaissance on the enemy. Reconnaissance is a mission to obtain information, maybe through spying, or through satellite imagery, to visually observe what's going on behind enemy camps so that they can detect methods and information about the activities and resources of the enemy. So think of chapter 13 as God's reconnaissance report on the enemy's tactics. God's giving us insight into how the enemy wants to devour us here. And the main thing the recon reveals on our enemy is that he is the operator of a massive counterfeit ring. Satan loves the tactic of imitation. He studies what's true about God, God's nature and God's character, his methods and his ways. And Satan tries to imitate, to mimic the true and living God. In fact, we see in chapter 13 a false imitation of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Chapter 12 ends with the dragon standing on the edge of the sea, the sand of the sea. And the sea in the Bible symbolizes chaos. And you remember the beginning of the Bible. What did God the Creator do? He called order out of chaos when he made the world. So the dragon in verse 1 is attempting to mimic the creator-like power of God the Father by calling a beast out of the sea who will bear its image. The dragon is attempting to counterfeit the work of God the Father. And this beast is grotesque in its appearance. Think of ten horns, seven heads, Ten crowns on its heads. Anyone hearing Revelation in the first century who had read the Old Testament would immediately remember a similar vision in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where there was this vision of four beasts who represented the kingdoms of this world, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And this beast in Revelation seems to be like the most fearsome combination and blend of all those beasts of Daniel chapter 7. Verse 2 tells us that it had features that were like a leopard, like a bear, and like a lion. And notice how the beast and the dragon relate to one another in the second part of verse 2. What does it say? The dragon 
gave the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. So who does this remind you of? Who said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. This sounds like something like the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Here Satan is trying to imitate that same relationship, presenting a beast to whom he mediates his sinister power and his authority. And the counterfeit continues in verse 3. What does it say? One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. Who else experienced a fatal wound, but then was healed? This is Satan's attempt to imitate the resurrection of Christ, to suggest that even though he received a head wound by Jesus' death on the cross, that that he's able to conquer that and to live again. And then if you scroll down to verse 11, you see a further manifestation of this unholy trinity as another beast comes up out of the earth. And what do we read about that beast? It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So it might look harmless like a lamb, but its devious words gives it away, just like Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And what does this second beast who comes forth from the earth use his power and authority to do? Look at verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So just like the Holy Spirit desires people to worship not himself, But the Lord Jesus, this second beast comes up from the earth and uses lies and deceits to compel people to worship the image of the first beast. And just as the Holy Spirit performs signs and wonders to put the spotlight on Jesus, the Savior, this unholy beast from the earth in verse 13, what does it say? He performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. What's the point in all this? The point is to show us that Satan is jealous for the glory that belongs to God alone. And he is scheming to rob the triune God of his glory by creating a false imitation, a cheap counterfeit of the Holy Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are being mimicked in this devilish parody of the dragon, the beasts from the sea, and the beasts from the earth. It's the height of blasphemy. It's the unholy trinity. Now, you might be wondering, as we read these things, who or what does this beast represent? Does, do these beasts represent someone or something in the past, like in the first century, when the original hearers would have heard Revelation read to them? Or do they represent something in the future that we're still awaiting Or do they represent something in the present? What is it? Past, present, or future? The answer is yes. It's all of the above. These beasts represent the hideous power of Satan 
as he works through human powers and governments and authorities and institutions throughout the sweep of human history. The first beast represents the ravaging and idolatrous power of the state or the empire, demanding for itself the loyalty and allegiance that belongs to God alone. We see the power of the first beast holding sway whenever an earthly government or kingdom demands your ultimate loyalty. Whenever the state says, pledge allegiance to me and you will find your life, your identity, your satisfaction, your security in me. And in the first century, this image of the seven-headed beast coming out of the sea would have surely evoked in the minds of the hearers an immediate association with the power of the Roman Empire, with all its brutality. And they would have remembered how its tyrants came in ships to the shores of the Mediterranean, of the Mediterranean to conquer and to subdue them. During the first century, the power of Rome seemed invincible. With every emperor who died, another would rise in his place to reign even more viciously. But this beastly power of earthly empires and governments is not limited to the first century. All throughout history, there have been tyrants who have dominated the face of this earth. To this day, we see it happening in places like Syria and Iran and North Korea. And then the second beast in verses 11 and following, represents the propaganda machine of the dragon. While the first beast flexes its muscle and exerts its power, the second beast whispers lies and propagates deceit. In our culture, Satan uses deceit and manipulation as a weapon to control the minds of people. He does this through the mass media. He does this through the educational system. He does this through advertising. He does this through our government. He even does this through religious institutions, whispering deceit and lies and seductive, manipulative um, untruths that are designed to take control of our minds. We see it in the way our government is promoting actively gender ideologies that call into question whether a boy is a boy. And a girl is a girl. And they're promoting these destructive assaults against God's creative wisdom and power in the classrooms of young children. We see it in the way religious leaders are promoting same-sex marriage or distorting the teaching of God's word to fit whatever evolutionary theory may be in vogue or teaching that it's possible to be a Christian and to fit in to this world, to conform to its pattern. We're being warned here, friends, that there's a battle going on to devour our faith and, and we are to beware of people who claim to represent the Christian gospel but who are really proclaiming Satan's message. Beware of false gospels. Beware of the imposters who propagate them. Don't be deceived by Satan's unholy trinity. Now this, this beastly power was at work in the first century. We read the Apostle John warning the church in 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So it was happening in the first century. 
But the Bible also teaches that this counterfeit Christ is going to appear in the future. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2 that a man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, the man doomed to destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. He will be revealed in his time. And praise God, when he is revealed, Paul says, then the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. So this demonic counterfeit ring, it's been masquerading itself in earthly governments, in institutions, infiltrating even the church, And it's been going on all throughout the time from Jesus' ascension till he returns. And it will continue to operate with ever-increasing ferocity until he comes again. But the most important thing for us is not to try to figure out exactly who or what this beast is, but instead to know whether or not you are worshiping him. John Piper puts it powerfully. He says, you do not need to know who the beast is. You don't need to know when the beast is. But you do need to know whether you will worship the beast or any beast-like contender for God's authority in your life. You do need to know by what power you will be saved from the forces of idolatry that brood over our world right now with supernatural powers of deception. That's why, friends, we are being called to endure. There is a supernatural power and force of idolatry that is brooding over our world with great deceptiveness. And we need to be vigilant in in enduring and staying faithful to Jesus. We are being called here to turn from false and worthless, worthless idols and to worship the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because we see in this passage that Satan is scheming to make what is beastly look beautiful. And he is scheming to take what is truly glorious and beautiful, the glory of Jesus Christ, and to blind our eyes to his glory. That's Satan's tactic. He wants you to think what's beastly is beautiful and what's glorious he doesn't want you to see. He wants you to keep, to keep you from worshiping Jesus Christ and instead to seduce you and dazzle you with cheap and tawdry imitations. And the sad result is that Satan's seduction is working in the hearts and minds of many, many people. Look at verse 3 of chapter 13. What does it say there? The whole earth was amazed and followed who? The beast. How does this happen? How does something so ugly and grotesque as this beast become an object of amazement and worship? Well, Satan blinds the minds of people to what's truly beautiful. And he makes what's beastly look beautiful. Just a couple weeks ago, I think I was on the news, I saw in North Korea they were testing nuclear weapons And the supreme leader was standing there, and he was surrounded by an adoring mob of psychophants. And they were all looking directly at him with a gaze in their eyes that that was just like adoration 
and worship. It was like they were singing to him, when we see your face, we worship you. That's what's going on. And that's the power of Satan. Verse 4, they worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? There's an air of inevitability about it. There's no use putting up a fight. Nancy Guthrie points out that this is what the beast whispers in our ears in our battle against indwelling sin. The beast says to us, resistance is useless. This is just who you are. You were made this way. You can't help it. Besides, it's not that big of a deal. That's that's the voice of the beast. We see also in verse 7, it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it, except for a select group of people. And we're going to come back to that in a bit. So you see the beast is aiming here to make a sharp dividing line. There's no neutrality in his mind. You either worship the beast or you die. And we see it ever so clearly in verses 9 and 10. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. We don't like to read this about saints being taken captive and conquered and killed. I thought the Bible said we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We're not the conquered, we're the conquerors. But we forget the context of that beautiful statement in Romans 8. We forget that we conquer through sacrifice. We conquer through the laying down of our lives, just like Jesus did. We conquer when we value loving Jesus and living faithfully for Jesus more than we value life itself. That's when we conquer. We see it again in verse 15. When the beast from the earth, the second beast, tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the first beast, and then he supernaturally, satanically fills that image with breath. And, 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 and he sa- it says he causes those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. In other words, you can't hide from this. Everyone on the face of the earth is going to be marked out as a worshiper of the beast or else. Or else what? And this brings us to the famous words of verses 16 through 18. All of humanity is going to be marked. It's going to become clear who worships the beast and who does not. And for those who do not bear the mark of the beast, just getting by in this world is going to become excruciatingly difficult. Whoever does not bear the mark of the beast is going to have a hard time buying or selling, holding down a job putting food on a table, keeping a roof over their heads. I'd love if, if we had the time to, to pass a microphone around about now and, and to just ask all of you to, to share what do you think the mark of the beast is? I'd love that. Or maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'm glad we don't have the time because we'd probably get about 100 different viewpoints In this room, what is the mark of the beast? Here's what's very clear. 
just as the Holy Spirit marks out those who belong to Jesus Christ, he places his seal on them. He says they're mine and separates them from self. Just like the seal of the Holy Spirit is not a physical mark, neither is the mark of the beast. Okay? It's not a computer chip that's put under your skin. It's not a barcode. It's not a COVID vaccination. What's important here is not what form it takes, but what it represents. This mark represents whether you've pledged your allegiance, where it represents where you've pledged your allegiance to, where your devotion lies, in whom you've put your trust. In the Old Testament, believers were to be marked on their foreheads and on their hands by their love for God's law and their obedience to his word. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God commands his people to love his teaching so much that they'll talk about his words everywhere they go with their children on the way in the morning and at night. They'll teach his words to his, their children. And in verse 8, God says, bind them, bind these commands as a sign on your head, hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. And some Jews actually took that literally. They, they would take these little boxes and, and bind them on their foreheads and on their hands with scripture texts in them. They were called phylacteries. But we know that, that these words were not, be, be, they were not made to be taken literally because if they were made to be taken literally, Jesus would have come into the world and he would have had those bound on his forehead and on his wrists. But he didn't do that. But he was clearly marked out. Jesus was clearly distinguished in this world by his obedience to the word of his father, by his faithfulness, even to the point of death. Jesus' loyalty, Jesus' identity, Jesus' purpose were unmistakably clear. So clear that this world drove him to the death of the cross. Everyone knew where Jesus' loyalty was. And the same will be true for those who bear the mark of the beast. It will be clear by their loyalty, by their actions, by their words, that they have given themselves over to this unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts. And it takes wisdom to discern this, we read in verse 18. This calls for wisdom. We can't just float through this world without thinking wisely, without having our minds renewed. We need to think carefully about what we're listening to, who we're being influenced by, what is shaping our beliefs. Are our minds, are our minds being renewed daily by the perfect truth of God's word? Or are we being duped and deceived by the seductive lies of the beast? Satan's deception is summed up in a number. The number of a man, we read in verse 18. And his number, its number, is 666. What does this mean? There are endless suggestions from the Emperor Nero to the Roman Pope to Martin Luther to Adolf Hitler to Ronald Wilson Reagan and thousands more. In ancient times, people would assign numerical values to letters 
They would attach a number to a name, and they'd add it up, and, and a name would have a number. And it's possible that in the first century, those who heard these words would have recognized them as referring to the emperor Nero and his vicious reign. But I don't believe that the main thing God wants us to do with this number is to try to figure out who this number represents. I think that's the wrong question. The number doesn't stand for an individual or an institution. The number stands for the beast. And, and this number here, this discernment that's being called for here, is telling us to look behind the curtain and to recognize the difference between counterfeits and reality. And here's how. Here's how you recognize the difference between what's counterfeit and what's real. The way you recognize the difference is that everything about the dragon and the beasts falls short of the glory of the one true and living God. The glory of God is perfect, infinite, beautiful, true, and enduring. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is 777. He is perfect in all his ways. But the dragon and his beasts are corrupt. They're contaminated. They're counterfeit. They are a grotesque parody of all that's true and beautiful. And they are doomed to destruction. They will forever fall short of the glory of God. That's what 666 means. The work of the beast is doomed forever to fall short of the glory of God. It cannot satisfy. It cannot give life. So don't let your life be marked by what's 666. Don't let your life be marked by seeking that which falls short of the glory of God. Let your life be marked by worship of the one holy trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is perfect in all his ways. You are being called to endure because you have a furious enemy who's seeking to devour your faith and to deceive you with counterfeits. There's no middle ground here. There's no neutrality. Either your life is going to be marked by faithfulness to the Holy Trinity or you're going to be marked by loyalty to the beast. And that brings us to our second question this morning. What difference does it make? What difference does it make if we endure in faithfulness and love to Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question is found in what John writes next. In chapter 14, John, Jesus lifts John's gaze above the enemy territory to Mount Zion. We're, we're in a new place now. It's a place of security, a place of refuge, a place of everlasting joy. And what does John see there? He sees something so magnificent, so beautiful, so glorious that it should cancel all doubts in the minds of believers whether or not we are able to endure the skirmishes that lie ahead in this battle against the beast. We can be confident, we can have hope that, that we will be kept, that we will be able to endure because we have security in Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb, the the source of all beauty, the, the supreme object of delight. There he was, standing on Mount Zion, the place of refuge and security. And with him were 144,000, the, the completion of God's redeemed people. No one is missing. They're all there, 12 times, 12 times, 12 times. I forget how many times, but it's, it's, a, it's the perfect number of all the redeemed 
They're all there. And what do they have written on their foreheads? His name. His name. And his father's name were written on their foreheads. They bear not the mark of the beast, but the mark of the lamb. And as they're gathered there in his presence, John says, I heard the sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters. Like the rumbling of loud thunder, the sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. In verse 3, I can't wait to hear this. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It's the song of redemption. It's, it's the sound of people from every tribe, language, and nation mingled together in harmonious praise to the one who is perfect in all of his ways, who has redeemed us with his blood. It's the most beautiful song, and we'll listen with delight and we'll sing it with joy. Verse 4 These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. This is not talking about some 144,000 celibate Jewish men here. That's not what this is about. It's not about celibacy. It's using the metaphor of sexual purity to refer to the fact that those who belong to Jesus have endured in faith. They have not committed spiritual adultery by forsaking their allegiance to him and getting in bed with the beast. They have followed the lamb through a beastly world. I love the the phrase at the end of verse 4. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They're, they're, They're sheep following their good shepherd, who's also the lamb who died for them. And wherever he takes them, that's where they go, even all the way to the cross, laying down their lives for him who loved them and gave himself for them. They've resisted the allure of Satan's counterfeits. They fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And they've rejected the lies of the beast from the earth and held fast to the truth of God's holy word. We read in verse 5, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And they've been redeemed from humanity and gathered into Christ to wait for a great and final harvest for God and for the Lamb. And this is how you can have hope that you're going to be able to endure the furious rage of the dragon who's scheming to destroy your faith here. It's the fact that your Savior is sovereign. And what did we read back in in, in chapter 13, verse 8? That this lamb who was slain, that the plan for his death goes all the way back to the foundation of the world. That this was no accident that Jesus died on the cross. This was part of the Father's plan. And and there was a, 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 a plan in that death to ransom a people for God. There was a book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And in that book were written the names of everyone who would believe in him. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died to secure the redemption of those who hold fast to him in faith. That's the confidence we have, and he is sovereign over our salvation. He's even sovereign over the raging fury of the beast. We saw that over and over again in in chapter 13. In verse 5, the beast was allowed to exercise authority. In verse 7, he was permitted to wage war. In verse 15, it was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast. What, What is this telling us? That our Savior is sovereign over the fury of the enemy. 
and that Satan is in subjection to the one who was slain to secure our salvation. So in his sovereign grace and power, Jesus will ensure that nothing the enemy means for evil will be able to separate those who trust in him from his love or keep us from enjoying his presence forever for eternity. We are kept in the palm of his hand. And knowing this should give us power and encouragement and strength to endure and stand against the devil's lies. But does it really matter? Does it really matter? Listen to the voice of the angelic messengers who who bring this whole great scene to a response, beginning in verse 6. Heed their call to faith and endurance. Let them show you what's at stake. Listen to verse 6. Then I heard another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Now, as you hear that, you might think, well, judgment doesn't sound like very good news until you've been abused, until you've had your livelihood or your innocence stripped from you, until you've lived under a corrupt government and endured horrible injustices. Then you will hear these words from the angel as good news, that the Savior is coming again, and he's going to judge the earth, and and he's going to cause justice to flow like waters on the earth. And this good news causes believers to fear God and give him glory and to flee from the counterfeit gods of the dragon and the beast. Then in verse 8, a second angel proclaims the demise of Satan's counterfeit regime. What does it say there? Another, a second angel followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And we're going to read more about that in chapters 17 and 18. And in the end, nothing is going to matter more to you than being found in a right relationship with Jesus. Nothing will matter more. Listen to the voice of the third angel and be sobered by this. Look at what it says. Another, verse 9, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. Do you remember the words of that pastor in that Instagram post? You remember what he said when he said he was no longer a Christian? He wrote, many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith and I want to remain open to this. Hear the voice of the angel pleading. There is no other way than the way of faithfulness to Jesus, the Lamb. There is no 
other way. What's at stake if you forsake the lamb who was slain for the salvation of the world? What's at stake? This chapter shows us what's at stake. It, it, it ends with this terrible contrast. Um, Terrible contrast as, as Jesus, the Son of Man, harvests the earth and he separates the, the wheat from the chaff. And in the final verses of this chapter, he takes this sharp sickle and, and in verse 17, he gathers the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened. And we read in verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath where John Steinbeck got the title of his book, The Grapes of Wrath. And then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. It's a dreadful scene as the agony of those who have believed in the false promises of the imposter and fell for his charm, they're now gagging and spitting as they drink the wine of God's wrath, says Nancy Guthrie. Rather than being comforted by the lamb, they will be tormented in the presence of the lamb. And the angel, remember what the angel said, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever that's what's at stake in being faithful to Jesus. In his book, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, James Joyce describes the visionary experience a believer had of hell. And listen to what he says. He stood in the midst of a great hall, dark and silent, save for the ticking of a great clock. The ticking went on unceasingly, and it seemed to this saint that the sound of the ticking was the ceaseless repetition of the words, ever, never, ever, never, ever to be in hell, never to be in heaven, ever to be shut off from the presence of God, never to enjoy the beautiful vision, ever to be eaten with flames, never to be free from those pains, ever to have the conscience upbraiding, the memory enraging, the mind filled with darkness and despair, never to escape, ever to curse and revile the foul demons who glow fiendishly over the misery of their dupes, never to behold the shining raiment of the blessed spirits, ever to cry out of the abyss of fire to God for an instant, a single instant of respite from such awful agony, never to receive, even for an instant, God's pardon, ever to suffer, never to enjoy, ever to be damned, never to be saved, ever, never, ever, never, every instant, of eternity is an eternity of woe. Such is the terrible punishment decreed for those who die in mortal sin by an almighty and a just God. This, verse 12 says, calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. In the end, nothing will matter more than faith 
in Jesus. Jesus has quenched hell's eternal flames for all who believe in him. And he offers an everlasting rest to those who endure the fury of the dragon for just a little while. Whatever it costs to keep trusting in Jesus, to keep clinging in faith to him, to keep believing, to keep loving in him, it's so much worth it in the end. When we hear the voice of Jesus welcoming us into his eternal rest, we won't regret anything we've endured to remain faithful to him in this passing world. And just listen to that voice in verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They die in the Lord because they lived in faithfulness to the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we bow in the presence of your majesty, we